Thanks for listening and welcome to the Bridges Community Church Podcast. Christ alone offers freedom, but we often keep ourselves locked up by trying to add on to His gift, and we further tighten the chains. Christ alone offers freedom to step outside the gates of our prisons and learn to experience life on the outside. Listen in as we check out our current series on the New Testament book of Galatians titled, Life on the Outside, with today's teaching pastor, Ron King. Now we get to get in, dive into God's very word for us. If you'd open your Bible, you might have um, an iPad or a phone or whatever, or maybe you've got uh, a normal Bible, and, uh, or there's some around you, so feel free to grab one around. And we're going to get into Galatians chapter 4, the last part of Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. That's going to go 21 to 31 today. That's our passage. And just a couple words of introduction about the passage. First is, if you have not been with us, or perhaps you need a little jogging of the memory, these first four chapters have really been about how does a person relate with God and have relationship with Him and live for Him and with Him in a healthy way. And the message that we've been hearing is that perhaps it's not like you've been trying. Maybe you've been caught up and just trying to do religious things or, or even trying to, you know, just come faithfully on a Sunday morning or working your way to God's approval and favor, that's not the way toward freedom. That's not the way that God has called us to live. He has called us to live by faith in Him. And He pours out His grace and invites us into a relationship where we are His children and we receive His love and His free care and mercy and relationship. And we're His heirs. We, we have these great promises by faith and not by our works. And Paul has been weaving out this story through the first four chapters, and he's bringing us to this place where really are his closing arguments for why we should live this way. And it's going to be some arguments that are very interesting. In fact, this passage is a little bit like a coconut, I think. It doesn't look very special on the outside, right? And um, I don't know who the first person has said, wow, that looks like it'd be tasty to eat. And uh, then they went to all that effort to try to finally break it open. They did it, but whoever it was did a great thing because you know that this normal thing on the inside actually, at least I think, it's got some great stuff inside. And that's a little bit like this passage. The passage I'm going to read right now. This is God's word to us, and then we're going to dive into it to try to discover what God is saying. It's going to be a little challenging to dive into and to crack open what I think what you're going to discover is when you do. There's going to be something really rich and nourishing for you. So Galatians 4, the last part, starting in verse 21. And then we'll um, seek to see what God is saying through this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Here's background. People in Galatia, if you haven't been with us, um, who had chosen to receive by faith, God's call into their lives to join in a relationship with him had been tempted to go back to an old way of living. And that was under the law, the regulations, the customs, and to try to earn God's favor that way. And Paul's continuing argument is don't do that. Don't, don't live by your own capacity or trying to be religious or doing a bunch of things. That's not what he's called you to live like. So he begins with his argument here, his closing arguments. Do you not 
listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham has two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Whose women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is it now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That's a tough coconut, right? That's, and, and you might, if you've just joined us, you might be thinking, okay, um, that was kind of nice music, but what in the world does that have to do with my life? It doesn't seem like it has a whole lot to do with me right now. And I'm here to tell you, here's the wonder of God's word. That when it's, it's given out and when we dive into it, it will never return without accomplishing its purpose. And I really praise God for that. It, it never returns empty, or scripture says void. It always fills us up. It always does what he's wanted it to do for us, to nurture us, to draw us closer to him. So how in the world does this passage do that? In chapters 1 and 2, Paul gave us his story, his life story. So that we might understand that for him, it was very personal how he had been enslaved to trying to earn God's approval by all the things he was doing and where it led him, the destruction it led him in his life. And then he met Jesus personally. And by faith, he found new life and and freedom. So for this, this whole message that Paul's been giving in Galatians, it's very personal because he had discovered how to have a relationship with God that was not fear-based or based on guilt. But it could set him free. And then chapter, at the end of chapter 2, he kind of spells it out theologically that we have been justified by faith. We've been made right with God, not through our works, not through our activity, but actually through the gift of God. And then in chapter 3, he, he draws the, the distinction between a life following the law and a life of promise. A life based on what God did on Mount Sinai, giving of the law, and got what he did through Abraham before that even happened through a promise, a covenant, a, a sacred agreement between ourselves and God. And that, Paul is making the argument, is based on a promise of God. And then, as a result of that, at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, it speaks to our new identity in that promise. That we have been called to be children of God himself. Children of a promise that he gave first to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bless all the nations, every person from every tribe and language, to the offspring singular, Paul makes the argument, which is Jesus Christ. Through Christ himself, we would all be drawn into this family by faith. So here, at the end of chapter 4, 
he gives kind of the closing argument as, as a prosecutor would. He, he wraps it all up so that we might understand it. And you might think, wow, okay, I, Paul, you totally lost me in here. How, did, how are you closing this argument? So here's what happens. First, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under law, you who are returning to a way of life that's about your own stuff and about how you can impress God and work and try to do all these things for him and then achieve God's approval or favor, tell me, do you not listen to the law? When you listen to the law, what do you hear? I'll tell you what I hear. I hear my own guilt because I, I, I read all the law, I see all the expectations, and I know that I, I can't obey them, I, that I sin. I did that yesterday and the day before and the day before and that, that pile of guilt. If I really listen to the law, it just brings conviction and guilt and it brings shame. God, you made me, and I understand that, but I never measure up, and I, there's nothing I can do to measure up. And, and that shame, just it's steep, it's steep, and it's overwhelming, and I, there's nothing I can do, and it buries me. Paul says the law is given, brothers and sisters, so that we might know and be clear that we sin, and we fall short of the glory of God. And why would you want to return to a life that's buried with shame and and guilt and frustration. Why do you do that? Why not choose a different way of living? A way that's based on faith and God's grace and his love for you. Why not live this way? Haven't you been listening to the law, what it does to your soul? How it just makes you feel ugly and bruised and battered and helpless and hopeless? It's a great opening, actually, when you think of it, huh? And then he gives three points, really, in closing his argument. And the first is based in history, verses 22 and 23, when he points us back to a story, a story that was rooted in these people's history, Abraham and God's promise to Abraham, and his promise to bless the nations through him. And the promise, the core of it, we've learned the last few weeks, is based in this phrase that repeats itself throughout Scripture, that the righteous, that is a person who has right relationship with God, shall live by, oh, really? They shall live by faith, not of their works. Um, I don't have a sense of entitlement because of the family or the culture I was born into or because of what I can accomplish. It's that the righteous shall live by faith and the Son of God who has loved us and given himself for us that is Jesus Christ on the cross. This is part of the promise. In fact, Paul weaves that out when he said the promise was based on the offspring, not all the relatives that would come out of the lineage of Abraham and Sarah, but out of the offspring, singular, Jesus Christ. That's the point of my message to you. That's the, the heart of the promise that God is going to weave out through history. So Paul has to bring correction to the history because they had a misunderstanding of what their whole history was about. And Paul's not the first one to make this argument. John the Baptist, when um, a group of religious leaders came to him, and John the Baptist was preaching this message of, man, turn from your sin and from trying to follow the law, embrace in repentance, faith in Christ. His message given, um, he speaks it out in Matthew chapter 3. Let me just turn there briefly and remind you of what he, John the Baptist has said. 
But when many, this is verse 7, Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Nice welcome, huh? You snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really are repentant, something happens in your life as a product of that. And do not presume to say to yourselves, um, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Pretty harsh statement. John the Baptist was... uh, fire and brimstone kind of guy, and he just let it rip just like he was. And so they came up to him, and they were full of their own entitlement and their own works. And he says, you're snakes. You're trusting yourself, and you think that you are a child of Abraham? You're not. Jesus himself reinforces this message in John chapter 8. I encourage you in your time this afternoon, the word, or perhaps this week, to dive into John chapter 8, but just a snippet from it. Jesus answers this way. This is in the, um, verse 31. I'll pick it up there. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Who in this room is a slave? Yeah, good, I see that hand. (laughs) Every one of us is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's freedom in Jesus Christ, not in this old way of living, because that way is slavery. So he bases this argument in history that your heritage is not exactly what you think it is. Your heritage is one of enslavement and sinfulness, and God wants to free you. And your identity is not in what you can do and all the good things you can look like and appear like and try to earn God's favor, but your identity is found as a child of God. Isn't that good news? And don't you understand your need that your efforts— result in sin, and sin enslaves you. It makes you a prisoner. What you need is someone to set you free, and only Jesus Christ can set you free. So he gives his first argument from history. And the second argument he gives, found in verses 24 through 27, is an argument of an allegory. Now, that's not typically how people interpret God's word, but he does this really great thing. And in, the, in that culture in the first century, uh, a person who was really good at the closing argument would often use this, a story, an allegory to make their point. And Paul does it with a twist. Here's the twist. A person who followed the law, a Jew of that day, would often think, I'm, you know, of the lineage of Abram and Sarah, and therefore, because I'm a relative, I, I'm good with God. I'm his child, and he loves me. You've already heard John the Baptist speak into that and, and Jesus speak into that, but that's what they were assuming. They, they made this wrong assumption. And he uses an allegory to say, actually, you're not um, Sarah's, you're Hagar's. Now, that was a, a big cultural awakening for them because Hagar in the story in Genesis was 
the, the slave of Abram and Sarah. And, and they got this great plan in mind. They heard the promise of God for them. The promise of God was, listen, I'm going to bless you. And it's going to be a product of faith. And so they started off really great. They said, okay, Lord, where do you want us to go? And God called them out of where they were at in their home, and they, they followed him by faith. That's a great start, right? To follow God by faith. And many of you have done that. And then God said, and the promise is, I'm going to give you a child. And they thought, yeah, right. Because some things God promises you that you bank on, and some things God promises you, and you're like, I don't, I don't think so. And um, in your foolishness, in my foolishness, actually I'll call it stupidity, we, we run ahead of God, and we try to um, accomplish what he wants, what we think he wants, through our own human means, and that's what happened in the story of, of Abraham. He, Sarah says, man, I'm, I'm just way too old, and God's not going to come through with this promise, so let's come up with plan B. Why don't you sleep with our servant, Hagar? Stupid plan. And as a product, Ishmael was born. But that wasn't, that wasn't the promise. The promise was that God would work a miracle through his promise. They would just wait on him. And that's ultimately what happened in the story that Isaac was born through Sarah, who couldn't believe that God would be faithful to his promise, and through Abraham, who struggled to have faith. And they're just like you and me in this, right? They struggle to trust the Lord and to trust in his promises. And so God wove out through his greatness this true son, Isaac. But they had assumed that, that they were of that lineage. And, and in the allegory that Paul is making, he's saying, nope, no, actually, you're the child of slavery because you're trapped in your sin. And, and really, it's not just you, but it, it's the entire nation. You need to rethink who you really are because the righteous shall live by faith, not by the law. So he gives him this allegory with this twist, and then he, he quotes this interesting verse. Did you see it there in verse 27? It's a quote from Isaiah 54.1 that talks about, um, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. I can tell you this from personal experience. Barren ones have a very difficult time rejoicing in the plan of God. Why is he making this argument? That's crazy, isn't it? Doesn't that seem like a very odd verse to quote when he's making his closing argument? See, they had assumed that they were children of, um, of God and they had this entitlement. They were privileged because of all the things they were doing and they were trying to follow the law. God said, no, no, that's, that's the wrong assumption for you to make. We are children of God through faith in him. And, and that's going to be even better than what you assume it to be. He quotes Isaiah 54.1 because of what comes before. What comes before Isaiah 54.1? Yeah, Isaiah 53, right? If you, and if you know, if you're an Old Testament scholar or, or if you know some of the Old Testament, you know that one of the, the towering chapters in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and suffer for us and take our sins on his own shoulder, by his stripes, we would be healed. He's given this, this thing that would trigger their memory to think about Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the promise, so that we would be his children. We would find our fulfillment in him. Interesting argument, but you have to kind of think about it because it's a little bit like a coconut, right? It's a little tough to get into, but 
But those people understood scripture that he was speaking to and making this argument. And it caught their breath as he was making this closing argument. So he gives a story of history and allegory. And, and then he gives a personal example, verses 28 through 31, where he's basically saying that we've been called to live as children of promise. As a child of promise and a person who is free. The promise is that God would bring his blessing through faith. Not through my works, through my activity, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ whom he would give. And we are called to live free. So how do you do this? That's the question that we've been you know, scratching at the last couple of weeks. How do you live as a person of, that God has called you to live in? Not trying to get his favor by all the stuff you do, but how do you live free? And how do you live in responsiveness to the Spirit of God? Well, you've got to come back next week. In the next several weeks, because that's chapter 5 and chapter 6 to get really specific about that. But let's think about what he's been calling us to so far in chapters 1 through 4. First, if we're truly to live this way, to live as free people, we have to abandon legalism. We have to, to leave the life of trying to earn God's favor or his approval and know that he has called us to just trust him by faith. And when we do that, he just looks at us and says, man, you know what? You really are my child. I love you. You don't, you don't have to work harder or do more or live in your guilt or your shame. I love you. You're my, you're my kid. So we have to abandon that way of living that's based on the law or trying to earn our way there. Because neither your salvation nor your identity is found in slavish obedience to the law. Neither your salvation, which is found in what Christ has done on the cross for us, or your identity, who you are. You are a child of God, a child of promise, a child that has been given the inheritance of God. That's all by faith, not by the law. Yes, God wants you to be holy and obedient and to follow him, but he's calling you to do that by faith in a response to his love for you. Then second, live free. He's calling us to, to authentically trust in the promises of God. I know that makes some of us freak out. Really, I mean, can we be honest about that? Because it's so much easier to have all the blanks filled in. And it's so much easier to, to know what's exactly in my future, but a life of faith isn't that way. I mean, what happens to Abram and Sarah? They're called to do all these crazy, stretching things, and it's hard for them. And, and you might think that living a life of faith is hard, and, it's, and it, could, it could wreck you, potentially. And you'd be right. It, it is hard, and, and we'll... It will wreck that human stuff that you carry around with you, but it is the only way to live because it's the way that God has designed us to live free. It doesn't seem safe, does it? Safety is me trying to protect myself with my bank account or with my achievements or, or my relationships. Faith means I have to actually trust and say that I am dependent, wholly dependent on God. I am not capable in and of myself. Listen, if you've been trying to seek safety in a thousand different ways, you need to know this, what God's word says to you. We're only safe in the arms of Jesus. We, we're only safe there when we trust him 
for what's going to happen this afternoon, what's going to happen tomorrow. That's the only safe place to be, by, to live by faith. So who knows where the Spirit might lead? This is where it gets difficult, right? Because you don't know. It's going to be a good place. I can say that and guarantee that. But it could be hard. And it may demand that you wait on him. Not like Abram, Sarah. It, it may demand that you put the brakes on right now, trying to do stuff and accomplish things, and just wait on God to be faithful, because he is faithful. But waiting's hard, isn't it? If it's true that you've been called by God to live in freedom, then let me ask, how do you think you're doing with that right now? How is that? How are you doing right now at living a life of faith? I can't answer that for you today, this morning. I can tell you that according to God's word, it's the only way to live. By faith in the Son of God who has loved you and given himself for you. That's, that is the only way to trust him. Because, you know, the, the entire story of the Bible is a story of God's presence and leading. What's happened to, to Adam and Eve in the garden? God wants to, he's present and he wants to lead them. What, what happens with Abram and Sarah? God is present. What happens in the wilderness with the people of Israel wandering around for 40 years? God trying to teach them for 40 years. I am present. I'm going to give you some physical manifestations of that. And I am leading you. What happens when they conquer the area where, where they would go to settle the people of Israel? What, what happens through the kings and through the prophets? What happens in the New Testament? What's happening today? God is present and he is leading. That's his agenda for us. The entire story of the Bible leads us to this conclusion that we should be children of the promise, people of faith. Of course, a life of faith requires a deepening dependence on the Spirit of God and not ourselves, and that gets at the core of it, doesn't it? That we have to depend on Him and admit that we're weak and we'd rather not do that. There's this really fantastic uh, statement, a group of statements by Paul. He's discussing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, what's going on with his life? He kind of opens the door, and he's got this thing that he's prayed about that God would deliver him from, and it's a weak area of his life. He just wants to, he wants God to relieve him of that, and God's not doing it. God's, God's helping him understand this really important, powerful principle. And so he just wrestles with this weakness, and then he comes to the conclusion that, that it's when we are weak that he is strong. That my um, that his power is perfected in my weakness. That's the story of God in my life. That his power is released in my life when I'm dependent on him. Don't settle for anything less, you guys, than the spirit of God working through you and calling you to this life of faith. Don't go back. He's making the argument. And finally, the, the first four chapters really are a call to freedom. Paul is doing everything he can to call people who are tempted to return to an old way of living, to this way of faith, to a new way. And that's really Scripture's call for you. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus right now, if you're like Tim over here who's in the stairway because he's, <laughs> I don't know. Um, if you're like that, you're called this day to live by faith. Each one of us, right, Kenny, we're, we're called as men to live 
by faith in the Son of God. And to call others to that life of faith. How do, how do we do that? To call others out of the slavery, the imprisonment that they have right now to a life of freedom. First, we have to live that way in our, ourselves to be a model. And second, we have to be proactive. God, where are you going to call me by faith this next time to call people out of slavery and into freedom? I have some dear friends who are here with us this morning who God called um, to a place that, you know, a couple years ago they would have never anticipated to call people who were actually literally in captivity, in slavery, to a place of freedom in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to ask um, Scott and Martha to come up if they would. They've just returned from India. So would you welcome them? This is Scott and Martha Keel. And again, um, as part of God's ongoing movement of to create dependence in their life, thanks, Scott, um, he has been challenging them um, and moving in them to help people understand the life of faith and what it looks like to escape save slavery and go into freedom. And you guys just returned. I know you're... Um, Still processing and still kind of overwhelmed with all the stuff of your recent journey, but tell us a little bit about what God has been doing with you guys, if you would, please. Okay, first of all, I just want to um, acknowledge that we are you. We've been here 20 years serving alongside you guys, loving you, and um, we are you. And so I don't want you to separate us out from what God is doing um, in, with you. Um, as we move forward, the coconut um, reminds me that uh, when you take a big sledgehammer and hammer on a coconut, it can be kind of a mess. And so uh, I acknowledge right now that I'm pretty much a mess. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't um, been able to process everything completely, but um, just bear with us. I, I wanted to um, pretty much just uh, share with you some of the, I guess, pictures of where we've been. And Scott can start with that. So we were in uh, the Mumbai area of India working with a group called Global Health Outreach that's a medical uh, and dental outreach. We teamed with Bombay Teen Challenge that's been working in the red light districts in the Mumbai area since about 1990. And so we served in two different places. Uh, one is called Kamathipura, and uh, it's the, one of the largest red light districts in India. It's tens of thousands of commercial sex workers in just a few streets. Um, many of these people that are in that, uh, it's different than here. You, you think here of a runaway that turned to drugs and uh, went down to become a sex worker. There, your parents may have sold you at age six. Uh, you may have been kidnapped off the streets. Uh, you may have been enticed down there to thinking you're getting a job and end up on uh, in these places where you're basically caged in a building where you might not leave a room for five to ten years and just be servicing many customers a day. It's an area without a whole lot of hope. Uh, in the other area, Turbay, where we were, uh, this is, was kind of an industrial area where um, poor people were living. The gangs came in, and the gangs basically took over the buildings, started charging people for rent for buildings that they didn't own, mm -hmm. and it's so bad that the police won't go in there at all because uh, they have police death squads, and they'll go kill all the police leadership if the police enter into the area. So these are dark places. We were able to walk around Kamathipura one evening after we were done with clinic, and we were just greeting people. We went into some of the brothel entrances to pray for people. Um, we saw this woman just sitting on a bench, and she had the most vacant, sad look. 
and just had no hope whatsoever. And when we asked her, you know, what her prayer was, it was just that, I have no hope. And, and this is an area where a lot of people don't know a thing about Jesus. So into that, we were able to bring our outreach. And uh, we set up clinic on the streets. Uh, we were able to pray for people, uh, able to share the gospel with them, show God's love to them. And it was amazing to watch the transition um, and, and what happens when people um, see hope. Um, we were able to go to church at a red light district church. So you can imagine going to church, about as many people are as here right now, singing total joy of the Lord, half of the church are still active commercial sex workers. And you think, how could they do that as a Christian? Well, they're slaves. They don't have a choice uh, about being gone. But their life has been totally transformed, and they're radiating the joy of the Lord. Uh, my translator, Hema, uh, when I first met her, um, she's this timid 20-year-old that had never shared the Christ with anyone. Found out a little bit more of her story. Her mother had died when she was age two. Uh, her mother was a commercial sex worker, had died of AIDS. Um, she was taken in by another woman who was a brothel owner. Um, that woman cared for her till about age eight. And at age eight, she uh, was actually uh, turned over to the um, Bombay Teen Challenge, who's, who we were working with. And they had kind of an orphanage, and they started raising her. And she'd been raised in a Christian environment for about 12 years. Um, and uh, was there to help, but scared, hadn't shared her faith uh, at all. Um, it was an amazing transition over two weeks. Uh, the first day, at the end of the first day, the report from her was, my face hurts because I've been smiling so much. <laughs> and she got to see God using her to share hope as we were going through the Evangel Cube and sharing the gospel with people. By the end of the two weeks, she was able to share the gospel on her own. I just tell her, do your thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I was ready to commit just looking at her expression and her, <laughs> her showing how much love was mm. in Christ. Um, our GYN nurse, GYN was the area where the stories really come out of all the abuse the women have had. Our GYN nurse had owned three brothels uh, in the past and was one of the worst brothel owners on the streets. And she had come to faith and God had changed her radically. And now she's ministering to these women and caring for them. And so we get to see the power of the gospel changing lives, even though the situation was still terrible. They had hope, they had joy, and it was incredibly powerful. Mm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to tell you about one of the patients that came through. He came to see Scott first for an eye issue that wasn't going to be fixed by us. Um, he can tell you more. I don't know. It's all medical stuff. But they ended up in the eyeglasses area where I was, which another, where mm. am I going to do? And um, there was a lull in the, usually there was just this huge crowd around eyeglasses, but there happened to be a lull at that point, and we sat down with him and started sharing, and he'd never heard of Jesus before and wanted to know more, and by the end of the conversation, yes, this is what he wanted, and his little wife slipped in beside him, and both of them um, accepted Jesus, and it was mm. just a huge excitement for mm. us. Um, but they're still in this horrible part of the town. This is the town where he was talking about where there's all the gangs and all that. And, and our clinic was held in a former brothel. The situation for them hasn't changed. That's the point I want to try to tell you guys is their situations aren't different, but their countenance and their lives are completely transformed. So that's um, these two right here. And um, um, so the other, the other people that are really uh, in the trenches is um, James and Sylvia. They are um, a pastor and his wife from Nepal, and they are um, 
uh, every time we, we pray with them and prayed over them, they were just weeping. Um, they said the arrows come flying from the evil ones so fast and so furious that a lot of times they just want to give up. And so I want to encourage you as their brothers and sisters across the world. Their name again is James and Sylvia, and you can write that down. You can pray for them. They really, really need your prayers. So um, we plan to continue to um, partner with them. They're going into these difficult areas. There's more um, areas popping up in different parts of Mumbai that our, our medical team is going to partner with them. Mm. So um, the last thing I wanted to share was just a little hope. Uh, when, we, when the girls are rescued, they're rescued into safe houses. Um, and I spent the summer with a bunch of them. The, the prayer there is that they need um, spiritual direction. They need a lot of it. They're, the people over them are former brothel owners. Um, that's their house moms. Um, there's the, the staff is spread really, really thin. And um, so really we need to pray for God to send workers into that field um, to, to help uh, raise them up. And um, so that, that's just a, you know, another item for prayer for you. Mm. We can't. Um, some of us can go with you guys on these trips, right? And um, be in the thick of this leading people, calling people to freedom. Um, but we don't have to go to India, right? Uh, um, one of the things, one of the encouraging things I know is that God continues to use you guys here and call all of us to be in the thick of this really great work, um, to call people from a place of ac active enslavement. Maybe it's going to look very different than the people that they've talked with. Maybe it's just enslavement to materialism or enslavement to uh, something of their culture or enslavement to trying to earn God's favor through s their activity or who they are. But God has called us as people who follow Jesus to be the voice and the salt and light right now to call people to freedom. That's God's calling a touch on you. And I would strongly urge you as you think about the message of Galatians to take active steps this day to call people, neighbors, friends, people that you work with, away from slavery and into freedom. Because that's where God has called us to live, to be children of the promise that's founded as the righteous live by faith. Let me pray, if I might, for us, and then we're going to turn our hearts to communion. Father, thank you for a profound message of your word. And... Thank you, Father, for the calling you have in our life to live trusting in you wholly and dependently, placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us and called us, and, and not on our own accomplishments, our own stuff. Thank you, Father, that you've called us to be in the thick of this battle, to, to call people out of slavery and into freedom globally and locally. And we pray, Lord, we'll be faithful to that calling these things for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks, you guys. Would you thank the Kios for me? Thanks so much for listening to the Bridges podcast. Check out Bridges Community Church website at bridgescc.org for more information.